0: Now, as we continue on in this book, in fact, starting this morning, we're going to see a clear change in Satan's strategy. What he has tried prior to this has not worked. And so, therefore, he's going to try something totally different. He's going to try a whole different approach. Go from a very obvious approach to a more subtle approach. Satan is now going to use Job's friends as the focus of his attack. He's going to use those fellows called Job's friends to be the instruments of the attack upon Job. Now there is no doubt whatsoever that these friends are not aware they're being used by Satan to uh, upstate to work on Job like they are. Uh, most people, even modern-day church members, are usually not aware when Satan is using them to discourage or defeat some other brother or sister in Christ. Yes, that, that is one of the prime ways Satan uses to destroy believers and divide churches. Uh, Satan is a master at what he does. Never forget that he knows exactly what he's doing. He takes three men here who care enough about Job to visit him in his time of affliction and turns the tables and uses them instead against Job and fight to fight Job psychologically in the warfare he's put against him. So he turns the tables on these friends and uses these friends as tools in his attack. Our biggest battles, folks, from Satan will be as he gets a hold of our brothers and sisters in Christ and uses them against us. Now, if I, I, if I allow it to happen, if I get too full, uh, too full party pulled into this, on uh, what's going on in the world around me, I can become very discouraged. The world can be a very discouraging place. I get that. I'm sick of the things we have to deal with on this place, the things we face day to day. But some of my greatest discouragements have not come from the world. I expect to be discouraged by the world. Uh, I was sad and not surprised by the results of the last election in Ohio. Not surprised, because I know that's what the world does. That's how the world sees things. So that doesn't surprise me. However, i got to tell you, most of my discouragements, my greatest discouragements, have come from saved people. I wish it wasn't the case, but it's true. Those who are, who are supposed to be on my side, those who are supposed to be with me in the battle, but turn their guns on other believers around them instead. And sadly, many believers have had the same experience in their dealings with others in the body of Christ. So... Satan is using these fellows this morning against Job, his very friends against him. Now, so far, Job has uh, held up well under the pressure. We've seen some dejection. We've seen some frustration in his opening monologue. But under the circumstances, what else could we expect? That makes sense. And again, these men sat there quietly for seven days and said nothing. They understood Job's misery. They silently waited to see what Job would do. Finally, as we saw in chapter 3, two weeks ago, uh, Job breaks his silence and expresses some of the emotion that he was feeling as he endured these events that have come upon him. And now, because he has spoken, his friends feel at liberty to speak as well, and they can respond to what's happened to Job. They can now voice their views on this tragedy. So, Eliphaz speaks first. Uh, In the Middle Eastern culture, we would assume from that that he is the oldest and probably the most prestigious of the three friends that are there. And I want to look at his words, at his words this morning and see them as, from this perspective. How not to help somebody in time of need. how not to, What not to do and what not to say in the time of somebody's grief. Uh, these three friends, and especially Eliphaz as we start, are going to be great negative examples to us, not positive examples, but we can learn from him. Learn what not to do when difficulty comes. Now, again, I believe Eliphaz starts out with the best of intentions. He came there for a reason. He came there to help. So I think his intentions are good. But once he starts, his conversation quickly deteriorates, and his words will show wisdom and understanding. He'll give the appearance of great piety and great insight. What you're actually going to see this morning, his words cut to the very heart of Job. And as a result, instead of helping in the hour of need, we see Eliphaz killing Job with kindness, which is why we tell our message what we have this morning. Look at verses 1 and 2, if you would, of chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Here we have Eliphaz's opening remarks, or his beginning remarks. Again, he says there, Who can essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? If we start talking to you, is going to make you sad? Here's what he's really saying. Job, you're probably not going to like what I have to say. I've got something to tell you. Uh, You may not like hearing this, but I need to say it. Now, maybe you've said that to somebody else sometime, which is always more fun than having it said to you. (laughs) But that is exactly what Eliphaz is saying here in verse 2. He says, Job, I don't want to hurt you. You're probably not going to like what I have to say, but I just can't keep quiet any longer. There's something I just have to tell you. And Eliphaz begins to speak. And what we find out is Eliphaz has a great number of things he wants to say. Much is on his mind as he watches Job go through this. And the reality is, folks, most of what he says is true. Very little of what he says is not true. In fact, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, most of what all of Job's friends say is true. You can look at the statements they make here and find other biblical passages that support what they're telling Job. The problem is not what they're saying. The problem is not the truth or the expression of the truth. The problem is timing and tact. And one of the things I learned as I went through school to, uh, for the counseling degree that I got, uh, there are times to speak and there are times to keep quiet. There's also time when things must be said and there's a way to say them that will be more helpful than they will harmful. And sometimes we see something going on in the life of somebody else and we have an opinion about that thing and it's right and it's accurate, but it's best to stay quiet and wait for the right time or the right opportunity to speak up. And sometimes it's best just to keep it to ourselves. It is the wise and mature believer who is able to discern when to speak and when to stay quiet. Because, folks, that book is full of truth. We know that. That book is full of truth. The entire book is truth. Every word of that book is true. But not all of God's Word applies to every situation that we observe. The application of truth is just as important as the truth itself. And in addition, when we apply the truth, And how we apply the truth and the motive behind our application of the truth are just as important as the truth itself. It is possible to say the right thing at the wrong time. It's possible to say the right thing in the wrong way. It's possible to say the right thing with the wrong motive behind it. And Job's friends make all three of these errors. The truth they know doesn't apply to Job The truth they apply is given at the wrong time, in the wrong way, and with a completely wrong motive. We must be very careful in our desire to help other people that we don't make these same mistakes. There's an interesting verse. I'm not going to have you turn there. I'm going to read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 32. That verse says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now what Paul is saying there is this. He tells the, the Corinthian church that they're misusing their spiritual gifts. We see the same kind of spiritual misuse going on today when people say, I just had to say it. The Spirit led me. The Spirit came upon me. I just felt led to say what I said. Oftentimes we blame our foolishness and our insensitivity and our spontaneity on the Spirit of God. And he had nothing at all to do with it. Paul is making the point in that verse I just read to you that when the Holy Spirit gives us a gift, he also gives us the common sense and the self-discipline to use that gift correctly. In the same way, if God reveals a truth to us, he'll also give us the understanding and the self-control to use that truth at the appropriate time and to say it in a way that is helpful and not harmful. But I know in my own life there are times I say the wrong thing, or I say the right thing in the wrong way, or I say it at the wrong time, and when that happens, that is not the Holy Spirit's fault. That's my fault for not using wisdom and self-control that God has given me to apply in that situation. Now, for some believers, I realize what I'm about to say is almost like speaking a foreign language, but I need to say this. Uh, The truth is, we don't always have to say everything we're thinking. You don't always have to say what you're thinking, folks. Sometimes it's just good to leave those things alone. As valuable as we think our thoughts are and our words are, as much as we may believe that other person needs to hear what we have to say, the reality is many times, folks, they just don't need to hear it. (laughs) They don't need to hear it. There is no value to anyone in using those words if they're going to be harmful and not helpful. We can do a great deal of harm and increase a person's struggle with well-intentioned words that simply don't need to be spoken, or at least not at that moment. We've got to be very careful as to how and when we speak when somebody else is struggling. And the way that we reduce the harm that might result from our words is to allow the Spirit of God to lead us in the words we say. And don't say anything without consulting him first. Make sure you consult him before you say anything. Now, look at verse 3, if you would. Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hand. Thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. Eliphaz begins by paying Job a compliment. What he says about Job is true. Job had been a strong man who had been a help and an encouragement to many people. If we went back to chapter 1 and verse 3, you would remember Job was described as the greatest of all the men of the East. Job was a wise man who had used his wealth and influence to make a positive impact on the lives of others. But Eliphaz is really just getting Job ready for the kill is what he's doing. He's just preparing him for the kill. He uses these kind words and then he hits him. Look at verse 5. But now it has come upon thee, and thou fainest It touches thee, and thou art troubled. What is he saying? What's the matter, Job? Can't you take it? You've talked to everybody else about this. You're one of the wisest men of the East. Why don't you take your own advice and use that own advice to apply to your situation? You've talked to everybody else about it. Why not use it for yourself? Now, that should sound familiar to you. Again, as we consider Job being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Because as that multitude walked by that cross, as those rulers stood before that cross that day, what did they say? Matthew twenty-seven forty-one. Likewise also the chief priest, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved himself, he cannot save others. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The same words they're using against Job is exactly what they said to Jesus Christ. He would set Job up, but he wasted no time in moving in for the kill, just like they did to Jesus Christ as he hung there upon that cross. Now, you would think these fellows sat there for seven days, had all kinds of time to put their thoughts together. You would think as they sat there, they could have been a little more encouraging, a little more sensitive, as they watched what Job was going through and saw him in the state he was in. But instead, he slaps Job verbally and then lays out his perspective as to what he thinks the problem is. Look at verse 6. He says, Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished, being innocent. Or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity, and sow wickedness, reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. Here is the basic thesis of Eliphaz. The basic thesis of Eliphaz, notice he talks here about this principle of reaping what is sown. It is a point that Eliphaz and his friends will make over and over again. It is their belief that Job has sinned and that he is reaping the consequence of the sin that he has committed. Eliphaz says, "Where is this not thy fear? Uh, Job has mentioned his fear back in chapter 3. He mentions it again in ch- uh, chapter 23 and verse 15. It is Eliphaz's belief and his opinion that what Job really fears is suffering the consequences for the sins that he has committed. I want you to hold your hand there, if you would, in Job, and go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Now, these are very familiar words. This is the principle of the word of God that is steadfast and sure. Uh, and you're aware of it, I'm, I'm sure, as you see these verses. Galatians chapter 6, i I'll look at verse 7. Because this is really is the principle that Eliphaz is laying out. Uh, Paul states it very clearly here in Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Notice Paul says there, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh, of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, that is a sound principle. It is established by God, and therefore it is absolute. And the principle simply is this. Whatever we sow, we're going to reap. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. If I sow a sinful life, if I live for myself and do things that please myself... I'm going to reap a life that is full of vanity and emptiness. If I sow a life of love for the Lord, if I serve others and meet the needs of others before I meet my own needs, then I'll reap a life of blessing and honor before the Lord. Now, we can fight that thing. We can disagree with that thing. We can pretend it's not true. And it doesn't change the basic law. It is set by God. And it's absolute. What I sow, I'm going to reap. So nothing at all wrong with what Eliphaz is saying here. He's on solid footing as far as the principle that he's presented. The problem is that uh, the principle of sowing and reaping doesn't apply in this case. Because you see, folks, sometimes you reap what you haven't sown. Now, I've told you many times, I'm no gardener. I have no talent to that whatsoever. But for the past couple of years, uh, my daughter has taught me, uh, talked me into planting a garden. So I've done it anyway. Now, when I plant that garden, at the end of the season, most of my plants produce something. I mean, there's something hanging on there. Not necessarily something edible, but it's there. There's some sort of product from that plant. But I'll tell you, what I also yield, and what I really grow best, is weeds. I am a master producing weeds. My garden produces some of the most beautiful weeds you have ever seen in your life. Now, I didn't plant the weeds, but they came up anyway. I didn't sow the weeds, but I reaped weeds. I didn't put them there. They just came there on their own. So I reap what I have not sown. And our lives on earth are the same way. There are things that come into our lives, events or circumstances, that we did not sow. They aren't a result of our sin and are not God's chastisement upon us. They came into our lives because God saw fit to put them there. So that his purpose could be accomplished in our lives. And that is exactly what happened to Job. We know that from chapters 1 and chapter 2. He is not reaping what he sowed. God chose to plant something else in his garden. Uh, for his own purpose, and Job is reaping that by God's perfect design. So the principle is true, we reap what we sow, we often also reap what we did not sow, because of God's perfect plan and purpose for us. Now go back to Job, if you would, look at verse 9 of chapter 4. chapter 4, verse 9, By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. Now, we talked before, Job also has connections, a representation of the tribulation time. Let me read you two other verses in regard to that. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with the equity for the meek of the earth? He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Those two verses, I believe, sound very similar to chapter 4, verse 9 here in the book of Job. And both are references to the tribulation. There is coming a time, now I can't conceive of this, I can't fathom this. But there is coming a time onto this earth where God, by just the breath of his mouth, will bring destruction and ruin upon the entire world not using any effort other than just a breath of his mouth. And as he does that, this entire world goes into ruin and destruction. Uh, God will bring that upon them because of the sin that they have committed and because of their lack of turning to him. This is another tribulation reference, I believe, in this book, and we're going to find out throughout, the word, throughout this book as we go through it. i look at chapter or, or verse 10, rather. Chapter 4, verse 10. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken; the old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. Now, very interesting. In the middle of this discourse, Eliphaz starts talking about lions. I don't quite. It's very strange why how that thing suddenly shows up. But again, I believe these things also have a connection to the tribulation. Now, first of all, let's understand. He's talking here about roaring lions. Uh, we have to understand there is a battle going on here between the lion of the tribe of Judah and the roaring lion of 1 Peter chapter 5. So we get the reference to lions in that case. Job is going through this horrible battle. He's talking about these roaring lions as he talks about this battle going on with Job as the focal point. But why this sudden interest in lions all of a sudden? I mean, there are five references to lions here in these two verses. So it is about the spiritual battle for sure, but I think there's something more to it. Again, I believe this is another tribulation reference. We're not going to go there this morning. You can look on your own. I think it's on your outline. But in Daniel chapter seven, verses one through four, lions are mentioned again, and they have reference to Gentile kingdoms that will appear during the tribulation. The lions are also mentioned in connection with the tribulation in Ezekiel chapter thirty-eight, verses ten through thirteen, and again have reference to Gentile nations. This time, nations moving against Israel. Nahum chapter two, verse eleven, also referred to lions, and again according to Nahum one seven. The setting is the tribulation, and the references to Nineveh, a Gentile nation. Now, in history, the Gentile nations typically represented by lions are England and Germany. Now, there are those who would propose that the old lions in the passage here of Job are talking about England and Germany, and the young lions are talking about those nations that have grown out of them Ireland and Scotland, Canada, Australia, and the United States. Now, if that's true, then studying those passages I just gave to you, as well as others in the Word of God, might give us information as to where those nations, such as the United States, are fit into Bible prophecy. Now, I'm not going any farther with that. This is a whole study itself. I hope I wet your appetite enough to do a little study on your own to see if God might reveal to you about that thing. But I do believe this. I believe that the nations that I mentioned to you, if they are a part of the tribulation, they're going to be mentioned somewhere in Scripture. You're going to find all those nations, including the United States, represented somewhere in the Word of God. You've got to find it through Bible study, and that's why uh, Bible study is such an important thing. I've been saved a long time. I've been uh, through the Word of God many, many times. Here's what I've learned. I've learned the more that I understand and learn about God's Word, the more I learn, realize how much I don't know, understand and don't know. As I go farther into that book, that just book just te- takes me farther and farther and farther. And there is one requirement the Bible gives us to be approved by God and be as a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. What is that? Study the word. Study the word. He says, study the show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. God's requirement to every believer, if you want to be approved by God, is study the word of God and seek his understanding in that book. And so I want to make a few comments, if I could, take a little detour here about studying the word of God. Here's something I know, and something you know as well. Every one of you sitting here this morning has the same Holy Spirit inside them. And number two, everyone, everybody in here has the same amount of the Holy Spirit inside them. God gave you all of his Spirit the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. When you got saved, you received the Holy Spirit immediately, and all got the same amount. Now, that Spirit that lives inside you is also the Spirit that wrote that book. It's the same author. The author of the book lives inside you this morning. And therefore, that author lives in you to reveal to you and teach you the meaning of the word of God. God is ready and God is willing and God is able to tell anybody the truth of that book if they'll take time to study it and search it out. Now, I read commentaries. I seek out what other men have to say about portions of the Word of God. That's not the majority of my study, but I find value when God has revealed to other people regarding His Word. I'm thankful for those who are able to communicate that, what God has revealed to them. But I believe this. I think every believer also needs to take the time to study God's Word on their own. I think, without being influenced by anybody else or anything else, and just see what God reveals to you as you read the Word of God on your own. Just read it without anybody else's influence, anybody else telling you what the Word of God means. God is not looking for us to be Bible scholars. In fact, I've told you many, many times, there is no such thing as a Bible scholar. Because a scholar is somebody who has mastered a particular field of study. Folks, nobody's mastered that book. And nobody ever will. Uh, That book is unmasterable as far as uh, human beings go. You'll never master it. Anybody who says they have mastered the Word of God, anybody who calls themselves a Bible scholar is trying to fool themselves and everybody else. What God is looking for, and I believe what God blesses, is Bible students. God wants you to be a student of the Word of God. That's what he's looking for. And there are times when we just need to sit down with the Word of God and with a concordance and with no preconceived ideas and without the influence of anybody else and just search out the meaning of some verse or some biblical concept on our own with no help from anybody, just you and the Spirit of God. You'll be amazed what God will show you. I hear these fellas say, these people say, you know, the Bible can't be understood. We've got to change the book because it needs to be more understandable. Listen to me. If the Holy Spirit of God wrote that book, he can help you understand that book. <laughs> just as it's written. Just as it's written. Uh, John fourteen twenty seven. Here's a Bible promise. You want it? Here it is. The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall, he shall, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said to you. He says, in that verse, the Holy Spirit of God will teach you all things that He said to you. Where is the record of what He has said to you? Here it is. That Spirit will teach you all things. There is no part of that book that without study and and allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us, that we can't figure out. It may take some time, probably more time than we want to take, But if we spend the time doing it, God will reveal his word to us. I will tell you, folks, I see it more and more, and I know this to be the fact. What we need in this day and age are Bible students. We just need some folks who know the word of God. Because so much of what is going on out there is going on out there because of an ignorance of of God's word. If they just knew the book and followed it, they wouldn't be doing some of the things they're doing. And I'm talking not just about the crazy world. I'm talking about churches and believers. They do some crazy stuff. Why? Because they don't know the book. They don't know the book. And when I do something goofy, uh, it's either my personality or it's because I got cross on what the Word of God had to say. If I stay with the book, I I will never get off track. The only reason I don't understand the Word of God is because I don't take time to study it. And we need Bible students, men and women, and boys and girls, and young people who know what they believe and know why they believe it. People who are willing to invest time and energy into searching out the Word of God, so truth might be revealed to them. That's why we spend so much time in this church studying the Word of God. That's why we have Sunday school classes and junior church and Good News Club, where people, where young people are exposed to the Word of God and who are encouraged to memorize it and to read it. If we want God's approval. That's something we must involve ourselves in consistently and with great effort. All right, I'm off the detour. Back to the book of Job. I'll go to chapter 4 again and look at verse 12. Here we have Eliphaz's bold vision. Let me read this to you. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a little thereof, in thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men. Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all of my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes, there was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more just than God, and shall a man be more pure than his Maker? Let's stop there. Here is the mystery of the vision that Eliphaz had. Now, as you look at that thing... Uh, I think Eliphaz was put very well into some Christian circles think some things are going on today in Christianity. Uh, Eliphaz, holding on to that thing, could have his own TV show on the Christian network. He'd have his own podcast on the Internet. He's got some good stuff going on here. Because, you see, we live in a day and age where if somebody announces they had a vision from God, every argument ceases. You can't say anything at that point. I heard from God, and therefore, don't contradict me, I heard from God. Uh, there's no room for discussion once somebody says that. In much of Christianity today, personal experience has taken priority over the Word of God. You'll meet Christians who will say to you, whether they say it verbally or through their attitude, I don't care what the Bible says, I've had this experience from the Lord, and that's all that matters. I had somebody say that to me many years ago. We were in a Bible study, and she said, I don't care what you show me from that book, I know what I saw from my experience. And that's where she stood. No room for discussion, because I had this experience. Uh, people will trust their experiences and their experience of others over the clear teaching of God's Word. You have people today who are following teachers and preachers. Of, uh, I was going to say of the word, that's not the case. Preachers and teachers, they'll follow them because of some experience they had. Because of something God did for them, and because of that, they be- develop his following, and people follow after them. Even if the experience contradicts what the Word of God says, they'll follow the experience. And no matter who says it, and no matter how good they are, and no matter how godly they are, and no matter how sincere they seem to be, experience is never a replacement for the Word of God. Never. Never. Most times trusting our experiences leads us right into the hands of the devil. (laughs) Experience involves emotion, and emotions are wonderful things as long as they aren't running the show. If emotions is running the show, a whole other thing goes on at that point. And as long as when, when emotions start running the show, Satan has been, been given permission to enter, and boy, can he take charge of those things. You watch it happen. <laughs> so, I go back to what Eliphaz says here. No reason, no reason to doubt his experience, because you see, he's living in a time where there was no word of God, no written word. Uh, God spoke to people through dreams and visions, and oftentimes those were the authority God used to show people things. Uh, Let me read you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto their fathers by the prophets, hath in these last times spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. What's it saying? He's saying there, in time past, God used prophets. And so one of the ways God spoke through those prophets was by dreams and visions as he communicated truth to those people. What does it also say? It also says there that when the sun showed up, that all stopped. We no longer needed the dreams and visions because the Word of God was here with us, both in person and then later in a written form. And because of that, that's where truth comes from. Folks, I don't care what kind of dream a person has. I don't care what kind of vision they have. It doesn't matter to me whatsoever. What does the Word of God say? There have been many, many books written now, I'm not sure how many, about these folks who go to heaven or go to hell. And then come back and tell you about it. You know what I say that is? You know that, 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 that uh, a theological term I've given you before? B-O-L-O-G-N-A? <laughs> That's the, the classical Greek, baloney in the uh, common Greek. It's baloney, folks. I don't care who says what they did. I've got a book who tells me what God wants me to know. I don't need anybody to go to heaven and tell me what it's like. I've got a book to tell me what it's like. And by the way... Paul went to heaven and was told, don't talk about it when he came back. Well, if Paul wasn't allowed to talk about it, why should some little kid be allowed to talk about it? <laughs> Whole different story. You need to get off that now. All right. What I'm trying to say is this. God now has given us his written word. God gave us his son. That's where the revelation comes from now. It does not come from any other source. It comes from there. Uh, they had a, he had a vision here. They accepted his words because that's how God spoke back then. I want you to look at verse 17. Because here we have the message of the vision. Verse 17 says, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his Maker? That's the voice that he heard from this vision, and two questions were asked. Now the answer to both those questions is very obvious. No mortal is more just than God, and no man can be more pure than his Maker. Verse 18, Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. He's talking about those angels that fell during the time of the rebellion. We see that back in Genesis chapter 6. We find those fallen angels mingling with the daughters of men. And that union brought about the flood that God brought on all the world. So God charged those angels with folly and brought a worldwide flood to destroy them. Prophetically, that's going to happen again. Uh, Don't go there. But in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, the Bible tells us that in the tribulation time, God is going to wage war against fallen angels and against Satan and is going to destroy them. That's what he's talking about in verse 18. But then in verse 18, he says something else. Look at it again. Behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels. He charged with folly. Then look at verse 19. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. Now he connects it to men. Men dwell in houses of clay. That body you're in this morning, that body was made from dust. That's all it's worth. It's worth dust. (laughs) I see all these folks, are you know, primping the body, you know, and, and displaying the body and so forth. What they're displaying is a case of dust. <laughs> That's all they're displaying. That's all it is. Uh, and what Eliphaz says here through this vision, how can God, if he couldn't trust his angels, how can God ever trust things that are made of clay that are made of dust? And he's exactly right. We are all fallen sinners. God can't trust us to do the right thing because of our sinful natures that we carry with us. Now, thankfully, God... Jesus Christ changes all that, but in this nature, God can't trust me, and God can't trust you. Verse 19, again, how much less in them that dwell in houses of play, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. He just tells you how frail and how weak we are. He says that the body can be crushed by a moth. (laughs) That's quite a vision, that's quite a picture. What he's saying is, any small attack can destroy us and cause us to fall. I see these folks flexing their muscles, either physically or emotionally, however they flex them, uh, trying to show us how strong they are. Every person has a breaking point. Because, you see, this is flesh. This flesh can crumble at some point. Now, some can take more than others. That's all well and good. But sooner or later, every person has a place where they simply can't manage it anymore. Uh, People are not as strong as they think they are. And those who put glory in this flesh are glorifying something that with enough enough pressure put on it will crack and break just like anything else will. Verse 20. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Folks, you see what he says there? He says there, bodies are destroyed from morning to evening. They die just like that. Every second, somebody's gone. All over this world, people are dying right now. Every second that you sit here, somebody's dying. Now, what he says there, again, look at it. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever. Look at it. Without any regarding it. They die, and nobody even notices. And there you have the majority of Christianity in the 21st century. People are dying every day. Every day, all around us, and many in the church are doing little, if anything, to keep them from falling into eternal, Christless hell. We talk about it, we do lip service to it, we look at the statistics, but very few Christians do anything on their own to keep anybody from dying without the Lord. What a condemnation that is to us. They die without any regarding it. Look at verse 21. Doth not their excellency, which is in them, go away? They die even without wisdom. Whatever wisdom a person has, when that person dies, that wisdom dies with them. A man or woman may know a lot of things. They may invest their lives in learning a trade or developing a skill, but in death it doesn't matter. That knowledge has no effect whatsoever in determining the final fate of somebody who dies. My dad was an auto mechanic for many, many years. He was a master mechanic for a long, long time. He had great knowledge about how to fix a car. He died with all that knowledge with him. (laughs) Nobody has it. He died with it. You see, folks, you learn all these things. You learn all this stuff, all these worldly things. And when you die, it all dies with them. It doesn't carry on. It's gone. Whatever excellency a person may have on earth, it vanishes at death. Job 28.28 says this. True wisdom is fear of the Lord. True wisdom is to fear God. That is the only wisdom that makes a difference at death. You may be impressed by somebody's wisdom here. They may know a lot of things here, be able to do a lot of things here. But the only wisdom that counts is the wisdom that impresses God. And that involves having a right attitude and a right relationship with him. So everything Eliphaz says here is true. He hasn't said one thing that's not true. The only issue is the application. The only issue is the attitude that he has as he presents these truths. The application of this truth to Job's life is not appropriate. And as a result, he doesn't help Job in time of his need. Instead, he adds to the torment that Job is already going through. And Satan is behind it all. His intentions may have been right. Uh, He may be trying to do the right thing. But because his attitude is wrong, he becomes a tool of the devil. And we're going to see as we get into chapter 5, Eliphaz continues that presentation and does the same thing as he goes through. He never changes his approach. Now, a couple of things I want to say before we close this morning. Number one, we are a church that stands upon the Word of God. Uh, We call this church Calvary Bible Baptist Church. That Bible is in there for a purpose, for a reason. I believe the studying and knowing the Word of God is the most important and the best thing that anybody could do. And this may sound strange to you, but I'm going to say this also. It is not enough to know just the facts of the Word of God. You must also know how to apply the Word of God if you're going to get the full benefit of that book. If you're going to be able to use that book to help somebody else in their, in their time of need. We can know a lot about the Word of God. We can have a significant, spend significant time in studying the Word of God. But if our attitude is wrong, if our application is incorrect, we will not benefit from the knowledge we gain, nor will it be of any help to anybody else. In fact, just as Eliphaz did here with Job, we can potentially increase the misery of somebody by using the Word of God on them. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen where somebody takes that book and beats somebody with it, trying to help them through some difficulty. It doesn't help at all. It becomes a battering ram, a tool of the devil. Amazing enough. Let me give you one more reminder. And this is very, very important this morning. There are those in our world, as you are aware, who have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. They have their entire lives planned out. They know exactly what they're going to do with their life. They know what it's going to look like from start to finish. And they've got all the plans set. The one thing that they've not planned for is death. They've got life entirely planned out. They haven't considered what happens when life is over. That's not been planned. They're they're not prepared to die. What Eliphaz says here is true, and I'm going to grab on to that verse 20 again. He says that everybody dies. Death comes to everybody. And it's amazing to me, the one event that everybody will experience is the one event that not everybody prepares for. If Jesus Christ doesn't come, folks, we're all going to die. But so many in our world are not ready for that. They're not preparing themselves for that. Why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that for this reason. I hate that last phrase in that verse 20 without any regarding it. We need to be regarding that. We need to be helping people prepare for the one event that's going to happen to them above all else. They need to know that Jesus Christ died for them, because if they don't know that, they're going to die without him. Everybody we know is dying. We prepare them for that death by helping them see that Jesus Christ is the only one they need to trust. And if they trust him, uh, he'll die for them. and They may not have to die at all. You have people in your life who may die physically, but if they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they'll never die spiritually. Folks, I'm trying to give us a push this morning to realize they are dying all around us. No guarantee whatsoever that person you know today will be there tomorrow. And all I'm saying to you is pray about it, seek God's opportunities, speak to that person when God gives you that opportunity. Christ's death is a payment for all who live on this earth. Anybody who calls on them, Jesus Christ will save. It is our responsibility. Please hear me. It is our responsibility to prepare others for death. They're not doing it. We need to help them do that. And may we take that responsibility as the most important job that we have until Jesus Christ calls us home. Prepare others for what is certainly going to come to them. Let's pray.